turn to Second Timothy. As I've been uh, thinking about Mother's Day, I've been kind of thinking about all the many lessons that I have learned from my mother. And I continue to just enjoy being able to spend time with her when I'm able to do that. And I've actually learned a lot from my mom. Some of my life's greatest lessons have come from my mother's tutoring me. For instance, uh, showing respect to ladies uh, was a lesson that my mom instilled in me. Maybe you uh, learned this lesson. Uh, like many of the lessons I've learned in life, I've had to learn these lessons the hard way. Okay, And uh, this one took place, uh, we had moved to Rochester, Minnesota from Montana. Uh, it's very cold, windy, snowy in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, my brother and I, we were going with mom to the mall and it was cold outside, so we were running, you know, to get to the store, got in there, you go through a series of doors to get to the mall. And as it would be, you know, we were kind of pushing and shoving each other around, which was pretty normal. Um, and it had been a minute or two, and we realized that, uh, we, where's mom, you know? Uh, and we couldn't find her, and then we look, and lo and behold, standing outside in the wind and the cold, out the doors, was our mother. Whoa! And she's given us the look, you know what I mean? And that will look like, you better get the door now. And so we literally get the doors and we're like letting our mom in. And she marches in. My mom just really had a way of carrying herself. And then in a very direct way, she made it real clear to us that we were always to get the door for ladies, especially your mother. Okay? I got that one. And there's another great lesson that I learned from my mother. And that was that you need to value your mother. Now, our family of six, I'm the oldest of four boys. It was very much a, a guy's household. Our family of six went into chaos when my parents made the decision that mom was going to go on strike. Okay? We apparently had been taking mom for granted, not showing appreciation, not helping out the way we're supposed to be helping. And so my mom literally went on strike. She notified us that she was on strike and she was no longer doing anything. And we were on our own. And we hope it worked out well for you. And it literally sent our house into chaos. So with all these kids... Uh, we had tons of laundry. In fact, we would refer to it as bales of laundry because we'd roll them up on those like giant hay bales and take them from the second story all the way down to the basement. And like that, the laundry just started piling up everywhere. Um, mom was an awesome cook, made all of our meals, made hot breakfasts. Guess what? Mom doesn't cook anymore either. And so we're, we're on our own to find food, to secure food, to purchase it, to beg it off neighbors, whatever we could do, because mom wasn't cooking anymore. Um, there was there were no desserts, which this was super hard for us. But my mom was a great dessert maker and we would literally go through rows of brownies and gallons of milk and mounds of cookies. All of that was gone. I mean, you didn't come home and like, oh, yeah. And you raid the kitchen. There was nothing to be had. We just mom was on strike. The little kids got no help with their homework. There was no cleaning that was done. Things got messy, like really quickly. All of a sudden there's just dirt and stuff everywhere. Um, the, it was little kids, they needed help. Mom wasn't helping. You needed reminders. Mom was always kind of reminding us, like, do this. Guess what? No more reminders. Pretty soon, what happened is we were begging for mercy. And we promised that we would be far more thankful and far more helpful if she would come back. Now, my mom, while we were, she was on strike, she actually enjoyed it. She would sit down in her chair. She'd be like drinking lemonade or tea or whatever, looking at her magazines, casually looking up and watching us scrambling for things and stuff like that. And she was having the time of her life. She was just fine. But eventually, after a week, 
it, it came to an end. And it, and I, it had to. I mean, like, I, I worked at a real nice real retail store. We had to look nice. They had to have our shirts pressed. I didn't know how to iron things, things. And I remember my mom watching me as I'm, like, scorching my shirt trying to make this. We desperately learned the lesson to value your mother. Uh, now, in case you moms are like, I saw some of you taking notes. Uh, okay, and and on some of you, I can see some of your you guys out there looking totally worried, like, no, don't let this happen. And Karina, please do not get any ideas. We totally fall apart, and you know that, okay? So, and she's looking at me like, I think it's time. Okay, all right, let's keep moving on with the message here. Uh, another lesson that my mom taught us, um, and that was the importance of wisdom. My mother had inherited a very old picture of King Solomon looking at his son, and it had this Bible verse, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 11, at the bottom of it, and it simply said, be wise, my son, and make my heart glad. And so Solomon is kind of looking at the ground, he's deep in thought, David is looking at him, and and mom placed this old picture we inherited at the bottom of our staircase. So when we would come down the hall, the stairs, and literally we could fly down them, we had this like down to a science, but when we got to the landing, there was the picture, be wise my son, and make my heart glad. That was the only Bible verse I'd ever memorized in my entire childhood, all the way through growing up through high school, and that's only a half a verse. But I used to think about that, be wise, my son. Now, I didn't always follow that, okay? And that's, I'm not going to get into all those details of how I didn't follow that, although it was interesting, and I always paid a lot of tuition when I didn't put that into play. But it was a lesson that I learned from my mother. And I think that almost all moms, not, not every mom, but most moms, they do their very best to raise their kids. And if you question that... Um, I'll tell you something that would be helpful. Put yourself in your mother's shoes. Try to understand her background, where she came from, what she had to work with when she was raising you. And I think you're going to find that you will end up being a lot more compassionate and understanding. And there is no one perfect. And there are no perfect moms. But I think every mom gives it her best shot, trying to to make the most of her opportunity. Now, it's really interesting. Mothers can make a lasting, even an eternal difference. We take them for granted, but God doesn't want us to do so. It's, it's so interesting that in the scriptures, in Paul's final letter, he's about to die because he will not compromise his faith in Christ He's been a leader in establishing churches throughout the Roman Empire. He knows he's going to be executed. He writes a final letter to the very guy that we've been studying in 1 Timothy. It's called 2 Timothy. And in this final letter to Timothy, twice he references Timothy's background, specifically what his mother gave him. And so I thought this Mother's Day, as we're actually studying the book of 1 Timothy... I would give you the picture of the mother behind the man. Now, let me just give you a little background. In Acts chapter 16, verse 1, this is where we actually meet Timothy, but we also meet his mother. And it says, Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Paul also came also to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And Timothy not only had come to Christ, but he had such an effect and influence as a young man that walked with God 
that Paul said, I want this man, this man, Timothy, I want him to come with me. Now, Timothy had some pretty significant challenges. I want to just give you the ones that the scripture highlight. First of all, Timothy had a spiritually absent father. It says that his dad was a Greek. In Acts 16.1, it's actually an imperfect tense suggesting that Timothy's dad was dead. And so likely he wasn't even in the picture. We don't know when he passed away, but he certainly wasn't in the picture spiritually. His dad was a pagan. He was a Greek. And he probably made life hard on Timothy, who actually had become a Christian and was not even following his father's belief system. And so one of the major obstacles that Timothy faced is that he had a spiritually absent father. And there's a lot of guys, by the way, who've had dads who have been spiritually absent. And that's where a mentor, a discipler steps in. That's where actually Paul steps in. And oftentimes when Paul refers to Timothy, he calls him my son, my true child in the faith. Do you know why he does that? Because disciplers help fill in the gaps where there are great absences. And let me assure you, most guys have gaps. That's where Paul came in. Let me give you another challenge that Timothy faced. Um, he had frequent ailments, okay? First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, if you've been reading through that, you've come across this verse. And it says, Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy had some issues, internal issues, health issues. When Paul says to drink a little wine, that's not to just kind of inebriate him so he doesn't think about his problems. Actually, wine was used as a disinfectant to protect them from health problems. And so that's what he's telling Timothy. Hey, listen, you've got some internal issues. You need to address that. But one of the things we learn about Timothy is that he had frequent ailments. That was Paul says. Maybe the guy was always sick. Maybe he grew up that way. Always having health issues, always having a health condition. And let me give you another one that he had. Sometimes Timothy's feelings could get the best of him. In 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, you see this in verse, uh, uh, beginning in verse 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Look at verse 4. Longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Now, it's not, there's nothing wrong with a grown man to cry. But Timothy's emotions sometimes could get the best of him. In fact, Paul had to counsel Timothy, you want to fan the flame because maybe he, would, he was prone to discouragement. We know in 1 Timothy, he actually wanted to abandon Ephesus. That's why he told him in verse 3, remain on at Ephesus. So sometimes his feelings could get the best of him. And there was another obstacle that Timothy faced. And that was fear. You can find it. Look at verse 7. Paul apparently had to keep addressing this issue even in his last days. Verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, literally fear, but of power and love and discipline. You see, fear is the enemy of faith. Fear paralyzes us. It, it, faith empowers us. But maybe he was afraid of men and other people, and maybe he's afraid of rejection. Let me tell you, there are a lot of guys who end up being man-pleasers because we do not want to be rejected. Maybe he was afraid of that. Maybe he was afraid of failure. You get a tough assignment, man. And a lot of guys, they want to do well on their jobs. They do not want to show up and look like a failure. Maybe that was what Timothy was facing. There's always the fear of the unknown. 
I mean, think about it. His mentor, Paul, is imprisoned. He, he, he's finding himself in a situation where, as the gospel's going forth, Rome is starting to come down on this. There's even internal problems in the church, in the church and maybe there was just the great fear of the unknown. And maybe he had a fear that God wouldn't really come through with him or that he wouldn't really be there when he needed him. And perhaps fear led to avoidance and passivity and overworking and, and a mental paralysis because that's what fear does. These were obstacles that Timothy faced. And yet, where does such a great guy like Timothy come from? I mean, God used Timothy in some rather substantial ways. He gets a lot of good press, especially like in the, good of the book of Philippians. There's no one else, Paul says, who I have who's of kindred spirit, man. We are like-minded. I'm sending Timothy. I'm sending you the very best. Where does a guy like Timothy come from? He is forged in the furnace of trials. And yeah, he had a lot of obstacles, but let me tell you what Timothy had. He had a godly mother. And she made all the difference. And the role of a Christ-centered mom is so significant that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, marks out two key qualities that a woman of God, if she practices, is going to literally influence for eternity the next generation. So how does, the, how does a Christ-centered mom influence her child's heart for eternity? I want you to see this. You can't afford to miss it. And the first one is found in verse 5, and that is this, of chapter 1 in 2 Timothy, and that is by modeling a sincere faith in Christ. The single most important decision you moms could ever make is to develop your own relationship with Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says this, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to remember your mama and your grandmother. And I want you to remember their sincere faith. Billy Graham is the one who said, quote, cultivate your souls when he was talking to women, that in return you maybe cultivate the souls of your children. When Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5, I am mindful of the sincere faith, that word sincere is a nupokritos. We get our word hypocrite from it. And when you say anupokritos, it means unhypocritical, unfeigned. You're not acting, you're the real deal. The best thing that you can give your kids is to be a, just a genuine example of what it means to know Christ and to live for him. You don't have to be perfect. You're a sinner. But you're holding on to Jesus because he is the Savior. And he's the Lord of your wife. And even though it's highly unlikely that Eunice and Lois had a formal education in terms of the faith, they had their Bible, their Old Testament scriptures, and when the gospel came, they believed in Christ and they lived it out in front of the kids. If, if you don't take time to cultivate a sincere faith in Christ, let me just tell you what happens. You start running on empty and you start running on fumes and, it's, and life is hard. I mean, it's, it's already hard enough with all the obstacles and challenges it becomes especially difficult when you're not feeding your souls with just the life-giving bread of, of trusting Christ, of praying 
of spending time in the word. You want to take time to cultivate your heart with God. And I know you're busy. I, I've watched my wife over the years with all the many demands that she has. It is trying. There's, and it's hard. It's emotionally taxing, right? And it's like every week you're going to have some major obstacle, it seems like. And there's always these other things that are always coming up. Even 15 minutes a day to just spend time with God, enjoying Christ, reading the word. And some of you are wondering like, hey, could, could God change kind of my family tree? Because if you don't cultivate this relationship with Christ, you are going to fall back into default mode. It is to basically go back to whatever you learned from your mother, whether that be good, which is a good thing, or it wasn't so good. That is your default setting. And God is in the business of change. And he changes us from the inside out. And so it always starts with yourself. Now, God is fully capable of making just amazing, miraculous, instantaneous transformation and changes. But usually with people, he's on the slow road to change. It's like one step at a time. And that's what God is in the work doing with you. It is one step at a time. It's, he was addressing an attitude or, or a characteristic or a response. And so he brings it to your mind and, and there'll be illustrations that come like, oh man, that could have been handled a little better. And he's a gracious God. If you've sinned against your kids or somebody, he, he says, just confess your sins before him. If you need to ask for forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. Don't take yourself so seriously. It's that God who's at work in you. Ask the Lord, Lord, what does maturity look like in Christ in this situation? And he'll make that clear. But you've got to take time enough to pause, to think, and to pray. And change is a process. It's a process in you. It's a process in your kids. It's not going to happen overnight. I mean, think of it. Think of an oak tree. Oak trees develop over time. There's sun, there's wind, there's storms, there's rain. And sometimes if you look at the tree and you go back the next day, it's like, there's no change. But it's slowly growing. Even the adversities of life are causing that tree to sink deep roots and to grow strong. So it is with you. So it is with your children. If you're going to model a sincere faith, guess what? It's got to start with the heart. Your heart. Now, I, I want to just share something with you. When I was uh, beginning my doctoral program at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had the privilege of spending a week with Chuck Swindoll. And they gave us this really nice dinner, and afterwards, this great pastor and author was going to give some remarks at the end of his talk, or at, at the end of our dinner. And he gets up there, and... Uh, I could tell whatever he was going to say was pretty serious because at a couple of different times he, he had tears in his eyes and I was sitting close enough that I could see him. And he said, I just want you to know what, what changed in my life that really changed it all. Because it really came down to three issues. And he, he said, if, if you will take these to heart, there will be the difference for you as well. The first he said is that first thing you need to know is you've got to just know who you are. You've got to know how God's made you, your, your makeup, your your skills, what you're strong at, your weaknesses, your emotional makeup, your personality. You have to come to a place where you know who you are. He says, 
that was so big for me. And it was actually kind of later in life he said that I actually started to really understand who am I. And the second he said was so very important to me. This was huge. He said not only do you have to know who you are, but you have to like who you are. You know how it says like in Psalm 139 where it says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O Lord, and my soul knows it very well. You've got to come to a place where you're at peace with how God's made you. Instead of resenting yourself like, oh, I don't look like this girl. I don't have this kind of money. Uh, my husband's like this. My family situation is a disaster. And you're always comparing and resenting. You've got to stop. And you've got to come to a place where you accept, but come to a place where you can appreciate that God has made you just the way he wants you. You're in the setting. And he says, that was huge for me. Just to, to, realize, to actually appreciate and like who I am, who I am in Christ. And he said, this third one was so very freeing for me. It changed it all. You've got to know who you are. You've got to like who you are. And the third one is just be who you are. Stop trying to be someone else. And for him, he said, you know what? I actually preached a message like I would think it should be preached instead of what my seminary professors would be judging me if they were sitting out there. He said, I wrote a book. I wrote a book like I would maybe want to read a book. I, I didn't care what people were going to think anymore. And it was so very freeing. Friends, and especially you ladies, take it to heart. Know who you are, like who you are. Just be who you are in Christ. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment in Christ. And when you're there, you know what can happen. You can live out a sincere faith, a genuine faith. It's what your kids need most, and it will be the difference for you. Just rejoice in Christ, grow in Christ, be free in Christ, know his grace, and to show it. Let me give you the second characteristic that is so important that the Holy Spirit had it again inscripturated to point out the important role of a mother. If you're going to influence your child's heart for eternity, you want to be modeling a sincere faith. But second, and you can actually find this in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and that is by teaching how God's word applies to life. Look at this, chapter 3, verse 14. He says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And then he says, verse 15, listen to what Paul says. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That from childhood. Where did Timothy learn the scriptures? Anybody know? He learned them from his mother and very possibly his grandmother. He certainly didn't get them from dad. Dad was out doing his own thing. Kind of had his own little pagan thing going on. But Timothy had a mom who cared, who loved him, who actually taught him the scriptures. And he says, it is the scriptures that give us the wisdom. You see this in verse 15? That leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. There is no salvation apart from you and I trusting Christ. And the scriptures, the Old Testament, points us to Christ. The New Testament explains to us how you and I grow in Christ and how we can truly know him. And moms, 
The best gift you can give your child is a sincere faith and just a genuine imparting of God's word to them. And so he says, let me tell you how important the scriptures are. Verse 16, he says, all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. It is the scriptures literally from the breath of God and it is highly beneficial for teaching. Your kids need to know how to live. They need a biblical framework. They need to know about Christ. They need to know about relationship with God. It's the scriptures that will teach them. The scriptures are, pro- are profitable for reproof. This has the idea of correcting a wrong behavior. If you're going in the wrong direction, the scriptures will show you this won't work. You're made for God. And this is going to lead to disaster in your life. So you show them and you tell them, you know, God's word is really clear on this issue. And you present it to them. You show how scripture interfaces with life for correction. This is the idea of restoring something into its proper condition. That's what God's word does. It takes us when we're going astray and it brings us back to alignment. It takes a broken bone and it is the balm that brings healing. And it is a godly mom who can just explain the scriptures and bring this healing where they're helping their child's heart connect with Christ. And notice what he also says for training in righteousness, for right living. All of this comes through the scriptures. And so, friends, you need to know that your life and your kid's life take on the flavor of whatever is passing through it. So if it's if think of it like coffee, you have those grounds, you know, it's all like those coffee beans are all ground up. You pass water through it. That water all of a sudden tastes a lot like that. What? It's coffee beans, right? Well, so it is true, whether it be the media, whatever they're just hearing in school, what their friends are presenting to them at Instagram or what the word of God is presenting. But if you have a way of modeling and showing and getting your kids involved with scripture, their life takes on the flavor of God's word. But guess where that gets started? It gets started with you. It's going to be really hard to export something that's not a reality in your life. And if you, uh, if you want to know just how to, how to do this, well, I'll just give you a very simple little pattern. You just read the scriptures, just find some time to read, and then reflect. What, what does this mean? God, what are, what are you saying in this passage? Lord, how does this apply to me? What is something that I can take away from here? The third is you respond. So you read, you reflect, you respond. Once God brings something to your attention, you see something in scriptures, you ask the Holy Spirit, would you help me to make this a reality in my life? And then you remember. You try to remember what God's word said. And by reading and rereading, you're going to find yourself renewing yourself and reminding yourself of truths that God wants to be a part of your DNA. And as you follow this very simple pattern, you're going to find that God is going to change your comprehension, your understanding of the world, your convictions, your beliefs, your attitudes, your values, They're going to be aligned then with God's word because you're in God's word and your behavior, your conduct. You will be changed because God is bringing about change through the working of his spirit and through the word of God. And what's going to happen in your life? And if you do this with your children is that you're going to help them. Like it says in Luke chapter six, verse 47, when Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, hears my word and acts on them. Let me show you whom he's like. He's like a man who's building a house and he is laying a foundation on the rock and he's digging deep. You are going to establish not in your, your life a strong foundation, 
but you're going to help it become a reality for your kids. That's what Timothy's mom did. And, you know, it's really interesting. You know how the book ends, Second Timothy. It ends with this great charge for Paul. He loads it up in chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge living in the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. And Timothy, you do this one thing. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Timothy, make one thing certain. In your discipleship and in your public ministry, I want you to teach the word. And where did Timothy start learning the word? From his mother. She laid the foundation for his life. She had no idea how that was all going to work out. And so, moms, what we do, you teach the word. You speak the truth in love. You give it to him verbally. You show it to him visually. Don't pretend you're perfect. They're going to figure out pretty quick you're not. But they are going to see the reality of Jesus and the importance of his word in your life. Uh, Let me remind you, aim for the heart. We're not going for behavior modification. We don't want our kids just to be good. We want them to know God. And so in all you're talking with them, helping them with friends and issues and problems and trials and forgiveness. Always go for the heart and give them the pure milk of the word. Napoleon was asked, what could be done to restore the prestige of France? And you know what Napoleon said when he was asked this? Give us better mothers. For all that Napoleon had going and not going. He was clear on the most important issue when it came to moms. Moms lay the foundation for the future. Now, let me just tell you that others are going to invest in your kids. That that is how it's going to happen. And the eventual outcome of your children, you want to leave that in God's hands. But let me encourage you, make the investment in the season that God has given you. Make the most of the opportunity just today. And tomorrow. And just like trees need sun and there'll be time and there's going to be stress and trials and storms. It's so it'll be in your life. But give them a sincere faith. And help them understand how God's word applies to their lives. And I know that many moms feel like they have an invisible role. No one notices me. But maybe one day, maybe one day your investments Perhaps they will be shouted from the mountaintop, as they are this morning in the case of Eunice and her son Timothy. But let me tell you that with God, he is always fully aware of what you do. He cherishes your every movement. He loves you. And you're making an amazing difference. This past week, we were at Fellowship Family, and uh, one of the ladies referenced... um, this email that she got that was of great encouragement to her. And it was just written by a woman named Charlotte and it's called invisible mothers. And she was talking about it. Like, I got to hear more about that. I, I asked her about it. I said, Hey, could you send me that? What are you interested about? And I, and I read this and I thought, you know, I'm pretty sure we've got some moms that need to hear this. Let me just read it to you. It all began to make sense. 
the blank stares, the lack of response, the way one of the kids will walk into the room while I'm on the phone and ask to be taken to the store. Inside, I'm thinking, can't you see I'm on the phone? Obviously not. No one can see if I'm on the phone or cooking or sweeping the floor or even standing on my head in the corner because no one can see me at all. I'm invisible. I'm the invisible mom. Some days, I'm only a pair of hands, nothing more. Can you fix this? Can you tie this? Can you open this? Some days, I'm not a pair of hands. I'm not even a human being. I'm a clock to ask, what time is it? I'm a satellite to guide to answer, what number is the Disney Channel? I'm a car to order. Ah, pick me up right about 5.30. I was certain that these were the hands that once held books and the eyes that studied history and the mind that graduated summa cum laude. But now they had disappeared into the peanut butter, never to be seen again. She's going, she's going, she's gone. One night... A group of us were having dinner, celebrating the return of a friend from England. Janice had just gotten back from a fabulous trip, and she was going on and on about the hotel she stayed in. And I was sitting there, looking around at the others, all put together so well. And it was hard not to compare and feel sorry for myself. I was feeling pretty pathetic when Janice turned to me with a beautifully wrapped package and said, I brought you this. It was a book on the great cathedrals of Europe. I wasn't exactly sure why she'd given it to me until I read her inscription. And it said this, to Charlotte, with admiration for the greatness of what you are building when no one sees. On the days ahead, I would read, no, devour the book. And I would discover that what would become for me four life-changing truths after which I could pattern my work. No one can say who built the great cathedrals. We have no record of their names. These builders gave their whole lives for a work they would never see finished. They made great sacrifices and expected no credit. The passion of their building was fueled by their faith that the eyes of God saw everything. A legendary story in the book told of a rich man who had come to visit the cathedral while it was being built. And he saw a workman carving a tiny bird on the inside of a beam. And he was puzzled and asked the man, why are you spending so much time carving that bird into a beam that will be covered by the roof? No one's ever going to see it. And the workman replied, because God sees. I closed the book, feeling the missing piece fall into place. It was almost as if I heard God whispering to me, I see you, Charlotte. I see the sacrifices you make every day when no one is around you. No act of kindness you've done. No sequin you've sewn on. No cupcake you've baked. It's it's too small for me to notice and smile over. You are building a great cathedral But you can't see it right now, what it will become. At times, my invisibility feels like an affliction. But it is not a disease that is erasing my life. It is the cure for the disease of my own self-centeredness. It is the antidote to my strong, stubborn pride. 
I keep the right perspective when I see myself as a great builder. At one of the people who show up at the job that they will never see finished to work on something that their name will never be on. The writer of the book went so far as to say that no cathedrals could ever be built in our lifetime because there are so few people willing to sacrifice to that degree. When I really think about it, I don't want my son to tell the friends he's bringing home from college for Thanksgiving, my mom gets up at four in the morning and bakes homemade pies and then she hand-bakes the turkey for three hours and then presses all the linens for the table. That would mean I built a shrine or a monument to myself. I just want him to come home. And then, if there's anything more to say to his friend to add, you're going to love it there. As mothers, we are building great cathedrals. We cannot be seen if we're doing it right. And one day, it is very possible that the world will marvel not only at what we have built, but at the beauty that has been added to the world by the sacrifices of invisible women. Timothy Dwight, the former president of Yale, said, quote, All that I am and all that I shall be, I owe to my mother. I think there is a man that we've met in the New Testament by the name of Timothy. He probably would say as much. It is hard to locate an aging mother who believes she made a mistake pouring her lives into her children. And certainly it'd be more difficult to find a child that ever would testify that a mother who loved him and poured out herself into his life or her life ever did it to his or her detriment. Let me encourage you, friends. Rely on the strength of Jesus. Trust in him. Take full advantage of the opportunity to pass on a sincere faith and just a genuine love for the scriptures. And only eternity will reveal the tremendous influence a mother has on her children. Let's pray. Lord, this has been such an amazing Sunday. Mother's Day. A time for us to to honor our mothers. And we do so, Lord, by praying for them. For those of us who have moms who are still with us on this earth, Lord, we, we thank you for their investments. We pray for their well-being. May they know the love of Jesus in our love in very sincere ways. For those of us who are gathered here that our, our moms have now gone before us, perhaps even this week. Lord, thank you for them and for the legacy they've invested in us. May we carry it through to the glory of the one true God. And Lord, for all the moms that are here, would you encourage their heart? Their role perhaps is the most difficult and yet yields the greatest of results. We thank you for them. Would you strengthen them, encourage them? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.